I'd love for you to take the Word of God and turn to Mark chapter number 14. Mark chapter number 14. And again, just want to welcome those that are visiting with us and say, we thank God for you being here. And I do want to say that we, um, as you look around, you'll see the children. We welcome those in the service. Um, but if you need anything, um, there's a nursery back here. There's... Um, bathrooms to my left, to your right, there's a nursery with anything that you may need. We reverence in all um, the Word of God. Uh, and our goal is to train our children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So you'll see families doing that. Um, but at the same time, you'll see them attempt to balance that out with the reverence for the Word of God and minimizing distractions, not only as uh, children, but also as adults with, you know, um, limiting movement and, and various things throughout the throughout the, the service and the Word of God, I'm just seeking to, to have a healthy balance. You know, I'm having our children worship with us and training them up to truly worship God and teach them how to do that by example instead of separating them. Um, but at the same time, um, with a reverence for the Word of God in such a way that we, we seek to respect one another and limit distractions uh, the best possible. So, so you may see um, children going out with their parents throughout the, the service and then them bringing them back in after I'm taking care of whatever is, is, is necessary. Um, and that's training our children up in the Lord, but also respecting uh, one another in, 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 in the preaching and teaching and ministration of, of the Word of God and the worship of God. So, so, you, um, so I'll be praying for you as you seek to do that. You pray for us as we do the same on the back row and pray for my wife as she, uh, she seeks to honor the Lord in that as well. Um, but now let us go to the Word of God. We'll take our reading up in, in Mark chapter number 14 and verse number 32 and through verse number 42. It's the exact same scripture that we read last week and we will continue our exposition of the book of Mark as we seek to um, bring to the forefront um, a different aspect of, of this portion that we did not um, emphasize last week. So if you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. And then we'll go to the Lord in prayer one more time and ask His blessing upon it. But in Mark chapter 14 and verse number 32, you read these words. And they came to a place which was, called, which was named Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, Sit here while I pray. And He took Peter, James, and John with Him, and He began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then He said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on, uh, fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from Him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not, my, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Uh, Father, again, we come to you just to thank you, particularly this time, for the Word of God. Father, we thank you for... Uh, Mark, we thank you for the Spirit of God working through him. We thank you for Peter. We thank you for all the disciples. We thank you for most of all for Christ and the example that he's led, Father, on, um, on our behalf, no doubt. 
um, and the benefit that it has, Father, to us. We thank you for the example of of men, Father, not not perfect men, but also um, but but Christian men, faithful men, Father, men whom you've worked in through through ages past, um, the apostles, Father, disciples, and even men that are before us. We thank you, Father, for the church. We thank you for the blessing that they are and the example that they that they present to us, Father, of of not only saving faith but sanctifying grace, Father. And we thank you most of all and your Son for being faithful to us, Father, keeping your word. Um, and, and persevering with us, Father, even on our, our worst days. Um, Father, we pray this morning that as we come to the Word of God that you'd give us a spirit of humility, Father, but also a spirit of joy. God, that um, you'd humble our hearts to receive your Word, uh, possibly to see things that we've not seen before, Father. Not because we've not read them, but because uh, we've just not seen them, Father, with our heart's eyes. Um, and when we do, Father, I pray that you would exhort us and encourage us, Father, and convict us of our sins if necessary. And that we might be transformed by your grace, Father. I pray this morning that you'd use the example of Christ, but also the disciples, um, to make us more like your Son. Um, and to, to exalt us, Father, in due time. Not that we would receive the glory, um, but that we may raise you higher, uh, Father, in the work that you've accomplished on our behalf. Father, we pray the Spirit of God would just rule and reign in our hearts even now. That um, he would move among us, Father, and that he would accomplish your purpose. Um, as the word of God goes forth, and we trust will not return void. So, Father, we uh, commend this time to you now, um, that we would reverently yet joyfully uh, receive your word. So stay our minds and hearts, Father, to receive it this hour. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be, you can be seated. Thank you. Thank you so much for standing. Um, we return to the book of Mark. Again, it's been a long journey, hasn't it? But I pray that it's been a beneficial journey, a good journey. Some days a hard journey, but, but I pray a, a sanctifying journey. Thus it makes the hardships, it makes the difficulties worth it, right? And as we trek through and journey through the, the, the Word of God, um, there are those things in which we revel in and glory in and, and praise God for. Um, and then there seeming to be harder passages of Scripture that, that, that doesn't necessarily initiate with the joy of other passages, but we thank God nevertheless I'm recognizing that the whole counsel of God is necessary um, for the sanctification of, of, of the believer. And the book of Mark has been no, no different. Um, and we come to what is um, seen oftentimes and maybe even in your life a difficult portion of Scripture, um, but a blessing of a portion nonetheless. What a blessing it was last week to read of our Lord in verse 32 through verse 42 um, and what He endured prior to the cross, just to bring you up to speed, and we're in the last hours of our Lord's life. Um, we've been here for months, it seems, and not, not that it seems, we've been here for months. I'm in the last week of our Lord, and there's probably still a few months to go. Um, but while it's taken us months, it's not taken our Lord months, it's not been months for the disciples. They've labored with our Lord for now for three and a half years, and they've approached the last week of, of His life. I mean, in some sense, they know that it's coming. There's no doubt. Even in this passage, would we would recognize that, um, as as in this portion of scripture, they're even at odds with our Lord for that very reason. Um, Peter opposes him. All the disciples follow suit. Um, whenever he teaches them of his death, his burial, resurrection, and even um, of their defection from the faith. Um, in the pr immediate portion of scripture. 
Um, the Lord prophesies and brings to light a prophecy that the sheep would be struck down and that the sheep or the shepherd would be struck down and the sheep would be scattered. And Peter, um, leading the pack of the disciples, says, "No way." Peter himself says, they all may deny you, but I will not, Lord, in verse number 31. And it says that they all followed him likewise. The last week has no doubt been a hard week in their life. Our Lord does the unthinkable. He he rides in, uh, they're singing hosannas as he rides in on a donkey. Um, He's he's in some sense um, honored as king, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and it won't be but just a few days, and that they're ready to crucify him. Why? Because he enters into the temple. Is there somewhat of a provocation even by our Lord because he knows that the hour is near and even at hand. And he walks into the temple, he preaches a gospel message that, that just provokes them um, to anger. They engage in discourses with him for the, for, the, for the literal intention of discrediting our Lord to ruin his following. They're afraid in John chapter number 11 that if he's left alone, all the nations will follow after him. And thus they determine to kill him. They try to um, ensnare him with wisdom and intellect and their own skill. And every single time our Lord comes back, um, being the very wisdom incarnate um, in such a way that they cannot even respond. Um, he ends it and culminates um, really the, the, that teaching with the identification of him as the Son of Man. He asks a great question, um, asking them to consider the Son of Man, the Son of David. Is he Lord? Is he David's Son or is he David's Lord? Um, it seems at that time that they ask him no more questions, it says. They can't answer him. Um, he abandons the temple after he preaches parabolically against the condemnation of the nation of Israel, no doubt provoking them as well to bitterness and to anger um, against our Lord. Um, he abandons the temple, which symbolically I think represents his judgment against it. The presence, though, had already left ages before as they had turned it into a den of thieves. That which was to be the very presence of God and the place, the dwelling place of God in a house of prayer, and the Gospels tell us, um, they had turned it into a den of thieves. Thus the Lord abandoned it ages ago, but Jesus Christ Himself there abandons it. Goes upon the mount, um, and uh, goes upon the mountain, and in all of it discourse, I think pronounces judgment against that very nation and that generation. Um, the Bible says from there He leaves. They go to an upper room that's prepared. Um, it's, it's Passover time. It's, it's uh, that, that yearly celebration of the time in which um, Moses would lead the people of God out of Egypt. And they would, they would commemorate that, but not only that, it would point them towards a time in which a greater than Moses, a greater prophet, would come and lead his people out of bondage and slavery um, in, in a greater fashion. So it would be a time of not only commemoration and celebration of a former time, but it would be looking to a time that was greater in which the people of God, that Jesus, the gospel writers say, uh, that, that he would come and save his people from their sins. Um, in that Last Supper um, that we've often uh, referred to it as, um, he initiates a new supper, the Lord's Supper, a supper in which he, he refers to as um, the bread and the cup is his broken body and his shed blood for you and for me, but particularly at that time for those disciples. And it would set a pattern for the ages to come that as often as you meet, you would take this bread and drink this cup in, in remembrance of me and that the gospel would be preached um, to, 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 for the last 2,000 years, and if, if, if the Lord tarries 2,000 more until He returns, this would be um, the, 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 one of the, the, the great ordinances of the church that would preach His gospel 
Um, not only to the world, but, all, but particularly to his people, to remind them. It would be a way that they would feed upon him, upon his body and upon his blood, that they would, by faith, partake of Christ and be strengthened and encouraged and grace would be administered to the church and it would be something that we would cling to um, the ages to come and even cling to now. Um, they would sing a hymn and they would, abandon, and they would leave that upper room and they would go, as the Scripture says, out to the Mount of Olives. I mean, it would be there that they would encounter a garden, a garden called Gethsemane, which we looked at last week. It literally means oil press. It would be a place in which um, oils would be, or, uh, olives would be gathered and they would be, they would be harvested and they would be pressed. They would be crushed, maybe even in that vicinity. And that oil would be pressed out and it would be used for the benefit of the nation of Israel and all those who would buy and sell. And maybe even metaphorically speaking, it comes to this place, Jesus Christ Himself, um, that great root, that great olive tree in which men throughout all the ages would be grafted in by faith and He would be crushed within hours and pressed beyond measure. And we saw that um, last week. We saw the agony of our Lord. We saw the sorrow that overcame Him. That in that transition from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, we would see upon the pages of Scripture, upon the very text, um, this, 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 this visible um, change in our Lord's countenance such now that the disciples could look at Him and see that He was visibly alarmed. Um, there was something that overtook him. There was something that overwhelmed him, whether it was in, the, in, in prayer, in the journey, or the Lord had impressed upon himself something in a greater form and fashion that he had ever in his humanity. No doubt our Lord had preached of the hour that was to come. No doubt He knew of the sacrifice that He would have to make on behalf of, our fa- of, of the Father's will, but also on behalf of the people. Um, but it seems to be now that there's a measure that is meted out to him in his humanity um, as the hour approaches that was greater than ever before, um, such that it would even incapacitate him for a moment as he would fall upon his face, prostrate before a holy God. He would leave his disciples back and he would enter into prayer. And during that moment of prayer, the sorrow would be so great that he would sweat drops of blood. Hebrews chapter 5 says that he would cry out to God with vehement cries and tears, that the Lord, that the Father would save him from death. And that there is a weight that is, is, is overwhelming to him. Um, the Mark even says, even unto death. Um, it was even to the point that either he had hoped for death, in some sense, because the internal pain was so great as he looked into the cup, or it was even so overwhelming that physiologically it could have killed him. Um, and it's hard to think about sorrow and despair in such a way, isn't it? Especially in reference to our Lord. It's hard to understand the mystery there. But nevertheless, the Scripture is clear. Um, he was crushed in his inner man. No soldiers around. No armies visible. Judas had not yet formally betrayed him with a kiss. The disciples at times probably sat back in awe. I mean, what's wrong, Lord? Everything seems fine. But it wasn't. Judas had determined earlier that day as he watched 
Um, one of what he believed to be the most atrocious acts of a, of a woman worshiping um, Jesus. Breaks an alabaster box of oil and it provokes something in him um, that solidifies, um, solidifies his betrayal. Um, the next portion of Scripture will see him do just that. During this time, our, our Lord is being betrayed um, by one of his closest confidants. But that's not what concerns him. It's what's in the cup. The very wrath of God. He would enter into a relationship with sin that he had never had before, in which the wrath of God, he'd enter in with a relationship with the Father that he never had before, in which the wrath of God would be poured out upon him in the way that it should be poured out upon all sin. And that's what caused him to recoil, even seemingly from the very will of God. But in the end, he submits himself to the will of the Father and has a, an, an uncanny, unparalleled resolve and commitment to carry out um, His will even to the cross. And we learn of our Lord in Gethsemane. We learn of the great love that He has for the Father. And we also learn of the great love that He has for sinners. So much so that He would not forfeit His justice, nor would He forfeit His love. But in that cross, justice and love and grace would marry. And the wrath of God would be meted out and justice would be served. All at the same time, love administered in grace to an ungodly and a dying sinful world. Um, and thus we see in Christ all things come to pass. The justice of God and the love of God kissed that day in the person of Jesus Christ and continues to, even now, to all those who will come to Him by faith and repentance. And thus we, in some way, sympathize and maybe empathize with our Lord and in the, in the despair even within his soul, that all depression and all sadness and all sorrow is not inherently evil, we learn. If it was, then our Lord sinned. But there was a weight that he carried that day that was greater than he could even carry in his humanity. And it provoked him, um, it provoked him to prayer. It provoked him not simply to be an example, but it literally provoked him to depend upon the Father. I and mean, that's what, one thing that we should take away. We should see our Lord and it should teach us the sinfulness of sin as we looked and the horror of the wrath of God. Um, but it also just exalts the mercy and the grace as He takes upon Himself the hell that we deserve for our sin and our rebellion. But not only does this passage teach us of our Lord and remind us of the grace that He's extended to us and the horror of the wrath and the sin of God and the, and the sin of man, the horror of the wrath of God and the sin of man, but it also teaches us something from a practical perspective concerning the disciples. That we learn a lot from our Lord, and we learned that last week. And today, I would like to point our attention to not only our Lord but our, but the disciples. We have much to learn from their example. And not only their positive example, but also their negative example. Um, particularly this morning, to watch and pray. To watch and pray. And we see, I'll go ahead and give you the outline. We see the, the repeated visits of our Lord, and, we'll, and we'll, we'll go through this fairly quickly because we did last week as well. And then we'll see the responsibilities of the disciples, and really our responsibility as well. We'll see the reason for them. 
And we'll see the relationship between those responsibilities. And then we'll receive the results of faithfulness and unfaithfulness um, to those responsibilities. So let us look first at the repeated visits. Verse number uh, 32, we read, Then they came to a place which was called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and, and watch. We see that there's an initial command as our Lord is, is going primarily for the purpose of, of prayer, to commune with God um, because of the sorrow that is overwhelmingly came to Him, that He's seeking an answer from the Lord. I mean, in the meanwhile, He gives a command to the disciples that while He's personally going off for prayer, He doesn't leave the disciples to do as they please. Um, he understands the times. He understands what's before Him. He understands, um, and that's, the, that's the, the source of His sorrow. That's the source of His agony. That's the source of His, his sadness, His discouragement, His depression, if you, you will. Um, he, because He understands what's going on around Him. He understands the, the nature of warfare. He knows what the devil is, is up to. He understands that the armies are formulating against Him and have been for days. He knows that the one that is to betray Him is not present among Him. He knows what's in the heart of, of Judas. He knows the agony that's before Him. He sees now what's in the cup. And, and, and thus, he, he, he goes off with necessity to, to grab a hold of, of, of the, the one thing that will sustain Him in His great greatest hour of need, and that's communion with the Father. Um, and, and, and because of that, He leaves His disciples back because this is something that He must do. But at the same time, He doesn't leave them simply to fiddle around or to, um, to, to, to simply um, cut loose or to just be indifferent or apathetic. He leaves them with a commission, and that, that commandment is to simply watch. It is to be on the alert. It is to be vigilant. The word literally, it could be. It gives the idea of being fully alive, to be awake and to be aware. This is a word that would have been used in the context, particularly throughout the Scriptures and in secular writings to speak of impending danger. Stay alert, men. Keep your eyes open. Be ready for war. It's a word for warfare. It's not, it's not an everyday term. It's not a term you use you know, when the kids are walking through the grocery store or, or you're in everyday average type of, of activity. It's a word that's used uh, as a military term. It would, it would be used to speak of a military raid into the enemy's camp for that person who is to be watching for the enemy. It's not a matter of if for Christ. It's not a matter of if for the disciples. And it's not a matter for us. Um in the sense of if it will ever happen, but, but, but when? You know, we're on the enemy's turf in some sense, and it's just a matter of time before we encounter them. Therefore, men watch. He's, it's knocking even nigh at the door. I mean, this would have been something that they would have been extremely familiar with. If you'll remember just a few months ago, but it would have been hours in their minds. In Mark chapter number 13 and verse number 33, you hear these words, take heed, watch and pray. Right? He just delivered a sermon on that. And now He's giving them the, the unique opportunity to almost immediately apply the very text of Scripture in that great Olivet Discourse as the application comes nigh that these are the things that are knocking even at the door. Therefore, men, take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. 
He goes on to say it's like a man going to a far country who's left his house. He gave his authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Man, what an opportunity for them to apply the text of Scripture to be so burdened because of, of the, the Olivet Discourse. I mean, you read through it and you're just provoked in your thinking um, to faithfulness and to prayer and to other things. Um, and, and it would seem that, that those there listening to that sermon from the very words of Christ would have no doubt remembered that. And they would have taken it as an opportunity to apply it, to stay awake, to watch, and to pray that, that, that when He comes, they would not find Him sleeping. And we know that that's of another day, a greater day. Um, but in all reality, while the primary application may be to that day, it's really to this day because you never know. Thus, the perennial application of that text is not to be inherently prepared on that day, but to prepare yourself this day and every day so that on that day you would be prepared. And that's the message here. That there's impending danger, that they, they would be persecuted, that He taught them that they would be struck down, that the sheep would be scattered, that they would deny Him, that Peter specifically would, would deny Him three times before the, uh, the, the rooster crowed twice. And it's all coming to a point of contention between the world and, and Christ and Christianity, and they're to watch, they're to be on guard, they're to, to take heed. And if that wasn't enough, the disciples see Jesus' visible alarm and Him fall to the ground and, and don't know for sure, but the nature of this language here and the picture that's been painted seems to hint at the idea that Christ's prayer was audible. And I know that many of us have this idea, or at least you, know, you search Garden of Gethsemane and, and, and images pop up, and I wouldn't encourage necessarily going to look at them, but, but what they have there most often is this idea of a, a white Anglo-Saxon English man uh, with long flowing beautiful hair and a glorious beard you know, looking up as the heavens shine down in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays to the Father. Um, Mark doesn't portray that at all. Mark portrays this man who is feeble and frail and fragile in his humanity as he looks into the cup. He falls under sorrow and agony to such an extent that he cries, Hebrews says, with vehement cries and tears, even sweat drops of blood, that you wouldn't have been able to see his face off in that distance. That, 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 that no doubt, they're just, Luke tells us, a stone's throw away from that very picture, that very um, environment, those circumstances. Um, that they would have no doubt been affected. But maybe they're like us, and we've heard sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon, um, such that we've become apathetic and indifferent. And even though the application is quite clear and, and lays upon us, and we know um, that danger is real, for some reason we continue to fail to apply the very text of Scripture and what God requires of us. In a, in a practical way. And that's what happened here. He goes on to say that he left them there to watch. Um, and then he goes off to pray. He went a little farther. Again, a stone throw away, Luke tells us. Fell on the ground, prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And we looked at that last week. Verse 37, he comes back. He says, and he came and found them sleeping. Said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? 
Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He comes and he says, Simon, man, could you not? Interestingly enough, Simon is that, that, that original name of Peter. His, his natural name is uh, birth name. You'll remember that, that, that Simon was renamed Peter, which meant rock, it meant stone, it meant something that was firm. It, it was maybe metaphorical of who he would be and, and what he would do. You know, upon this rock I will build my church. Uh, and there's a sense in which he did do that upon the apostolic foundation, Christ being the cornerstone, that, that, that there was something future for him that would even be significant even in the name that would be prophetic. But he doesn't use that name here. This is, the, this, is the only, this is the first time that Jesus Christ uses that name since Mark chapter 3, which would have been years earlier. Up to this moment, it's been Peter, it's been Peter, it's been Peter. And here he says, and he finds him sleeping, Simon. Simon. And maybe it's, been, maybe it's a rebuke in and of itself, you know? It would be like you coming to someone and, and referring to them as a name that, that, that is not, they're not known by anymore, that, that it's, it's, it's referring to something in their past and you're bringing it up as if you're identifying them with that thing and not the thing that they are now. Um, and that very well may be here. He, he may be very well being saying, Simon, you're clearly no rock. You know, You're the same old fisherman in this moment at least that I found years ago. Surely there's a rebuke here. It's... It's seemingly a soft rebuke, though. He doesn't come and kick him away. He doesn't come and shake heads and, and bang and bust heads with the disciples. It's, it's a soft rebuke. It's a rebuke that, 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 that even with just the name and identifying him with his old nature and, and, and a lack of watchfulness would have caused him. It's questioning. It's, it, it would have caused him to examine his own life and to see um, why it is that he, couldn't, that why he could not stay awake. Could you not watch for one hour? It's almost as if Jesus is saying, Simon Peter, you, wore, you swore allegiance to death for me just an hour ago. Um, you said that you would go even to martyrdom and even to death. You would do these great and glorious things. And you can't stay up for one hour and just watch. It's almost reminiscent of Jeremiah 12.5. You know, if you, if you can't run with the footmen, how will you keep up with the horses? If you're planning a great life ahead and, you're, and, and your idea is to glorify uh, the Father and to live for God, the end is not justified without any means. Don't just think that, that you're going to live flippantly throughout your life and unfaithfully and not give yourself to, the, to, to the, even the, the seemingly mundane activities that God requires for you and think that one day you're going to hang upon a cross and follow in my baptism and follow in my way and follow in my death. And you can't even watch and pray for an hour. How will you be sustained? How will you persevere? Peter, you know? You know how will you uh, bench press, you know, uh, 500 pounds if you can't even go to the gym for, for 30 minutes to an hour on a daily basis? How will you be what you claim that you are and want to be if you're not willing to live on a daily basis and perform the activities that I require of you. I just want you to think, Peter. And then he proceeds to go back. He, well, he actually he gives them the, the, the further command. Not only watch, but watch and pray. Why? That, that lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That he's not only commanded to watch, that, that idea of being on the alert, being awake, 
um, but he's also um, commanded to pray. You've just seen me go. You've seen me pray. I want you to enter into prayer with me. I want you to do as I do. I want you to follow in my example. I want you not only to watch, but I want you um, to pray. Why? That, they, that you might not enter into temptation. That Peter, Simon, the, the disciples, that uh, the time is at hand. The time of temptation is nigh at the door. There was even within that hour a massive test of loyalty that was to come. The devil had so arranged it that the opportunity for them to prove themselves faithful or to fall in unfaithfulness to their Lord was practically knocking at the door. Are you ready for it, Peter? You'll only be ready for it if you watch and pray. Uh, one commentator says, spiritual, spiritual wakefulness in prayer and full dependence upon divine help provides the only adequate preparation for crisis. Jesus prepared for His own intense trial through such vigilance in prayer. They didn't have a clue. They failed to watch and they failed to pray because Jesus tells them, if you don't, you won't persevere in essence. Why? Because the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here's the great hindrance, men, to your obedience. It's not that you're not willing. I know that you're willing. I know that you're zealous. I know that you're, 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 you're excited. I know that you're enthusiastic. I know that you love. I, I don't even think that this is a, a harsh rebuke in the sense of, 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 of uh, you know, unbelief or, or, or things of like it's, it's very gracious, actually, of our, our Lord to provoke them to thinking that, that, was, that what he had done before, while prideful, I think it was even well intended. They were sincere. I think he meant it. Um, I think that that could even be a portion of what he means here. The spirit is willing. There's a, there's a huge debate as to whether, um, maybe you've never thought about this before, and, and I haven't considered it much either, that, that oftentimes we look at this and say that it's, it's one of two things, right? It's either the spirit of God in him, the Holy Spirit, or it's his spirit. You know, there's no capital letters and um, holy attached to it in the originals, and thus it's not translated that way. It, it could just mean that, that, that you're very willing. I know that, and that's evidenced by all the things that you've said prior to this, Peter. But, but, and that may be undergirded by the, the work of, of the Spirit of God in your life. It may be very well referring to the very Spirit of God that gives them a willingness. Because we know um, that that is necessary to, to honor God in spiritual things and to even discern spiritual things. You must have the Spirit. So it may, may very well be speaking of His Spirit, which is undergirded by the very Spirit of God, which is giving to Him this willingness, this desire, this enthusiasm, this zealousness. I'm about serving and honoring the Lord and what He would love to one day do. But the reality is, is that, that, that an eager spirit built upon a weak flesh is disastrous. It's dangerous. And it's destructive. And the only remedy for that, man, will be for you to watch and pray. For you to be utterly dependent upon the very Spirit of God and Jesus Christ Himself. Um, such that when the time arises and temptation assails you, um, Jesus provides Himself as the bread of life, that only thing which will sustain you, that broken body for you, that shed blood for you. I need you men to depend upon on me. It may very well be our Lord telling them, particular Peter, remember Peter, your boast from earlier, your expressed love in the statement of devotion, that you would never depart from me, even to the point of dying. Remember that? That's no doubt a work of the Spirit of God in your life, a principle of obedience, a principle of love, devotion, and various other things. 
And as misguided as the previous boast was, it's clearly coupled with a, a pride that, that, that finds its root in the weakness of flesh that, you will so, that will soon fail you. We don't doubt, I don't doubt anymore the sincerity or the willingness of Peter or the disciples. Um, just their weakness. That the weakness was in the flesh. That, that, that part of us which has fallen, our human depravity, that part which, which has a propensity towards sin and rebellion and failure and even um, failing our Lord. And he says that while your spirit is willing, your, weak, your flesh is weak. There's actually no verbs there. It's literally just, it emphasizes a willing spirit, weak flesh. That's how it could be faithfully translated. How did they respond? Surely they listened to our Lord by now. So our Lord departs and again, He begins to pray. And the Scripture teaches us that, that He prays the same prayer. He perseveres in prayer. He doesn't bring anything new to the Father, but, but He perseveres in prayer. And He comes back and what does He find? He Finds them sleeping again, verse 41, or verse 40. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came a third time and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. He comes, he finds them, they're not watching. He says, what do you need to do? You need to watch and pray. Why? Because you're, you're, the temptation is at nigh, is, is, is knocking at the door and, and you're weak as flesh. I know that you're willing, but you're weak as flesh. Watch and pray. He comes back and what does he find? He finds them sleeping again. Scripture says that their eyes were heavy. They didn't even know how to answer him. Luke chapter 22, I used to just think that maybe this was indifference and ignorance on their part. But Luke chapter 22 actually in the parallel account tells us why they were sleeping. Um, they were sleeping, he says, because of sorrow. Sorrow. That our Lord comes and He comes through the garden and He comes sorrowful. The disciples come and they come in a similar way. They come with a sorrow of heart. We don't know exactly the source of that, but you can imagine that everything they've encountered and endured over the last several days to weeks, that maybe that had a part of it. Our Lord's been teaching pretty emphatically and clearly now that He will die. John chapter 13 verse through, through chapter 16, in those discourses, he talks about the Spirit of God coming, Him departing, and, and, and he says things like this in John chapter 14, be not troubled, right? He knows that there's an anxious heart. Um, he speaks of His going away, and there's an anxiety with that, a stress, a sorrow, in which they, they don't know how to cope with. So, so He gives them the Word of God to comfort their hearts. Um, yet the sorrow continues to maintain and to sustain itself. Um, he's, he's, he's pronounced judgment upon his, his own people, the nation of Israel. Um, he's abandoned the temple. He's told them of destruction that is to come. Um, there's just, things are falling apart all around them. And, and maybe it is, is that there's a sorrow that overwhelms them that they don't know exactly how to pinpoint it or what's going on. But the nature of it is, is that they, they're sorrowful. There's a depression, a, a discouragement, a sadness of heart such that it causes them to sleep. That's a reality. I don't think they're here necessarily sleeping because of laziness of heart. Um, what you'll find in many occasions is that there's a sorrow that affects the body in such a way that, that to deal with the sorrow that they don't know how to deal with, they sleep for hours. Hours longer than what they would have previously. Some people give to drink. Some people give to drugs. Some people give to relationships. Some people get to other idols. Um, why? To drown their sorrows so they don't have to think about them. Some people sleep. They don't know else how to cope with it. They don't, and maybe it's even to the point to where they're just deeply distressed inside that they're exhausted and worn out and they can't stay awake. 
What they should do is they should obey their Lord in watching and praying. But instead, their flesh is weak literally, and their flesh is weak spiritually. Thus our Lord comes back a second time and He wakes them up and they don't even know what to say. They may be even be in such a sleeping stupor that they don't even know what's going on. He lets them sleep. He goes back and He prays a third time. Um, and He comes back and He says, are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. This really is a hard statement to translate. It could be a number of ways that you could translate it as a command, as a rebuke, as just a statement. I think what he's saying though is um, hindering on the word still. Is he saying that all there is left now to do is sleep. If you're going to sleep, just go ahead and sleep. And it may be well using irony there as he rebukes them. It's almost if he's saying, well, if you're going to sleep, you might as well just rest because there's nothing else to do at this point. The time to gain strength, men, is gone. It's enough. And that word, that translation, enough, it, it may be um, with the, the previous, and, and he's saying that it's enough sleep, but he almost may be saying that it's finished in the sense that, that I've got the answer from the Father that, that I needed and I desired to carry on. It's settled. Literally, it could be treadled, translated, it's settled. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners even now. Men, you wanted to sleep. I've let you sleep. Now it's enough. It's settled. The time is, is, of prayer is over. That if you were going to watch and you were going to pray, then the opportunity has now passed you. And what you needed is now gone. And isn't that a sobering thought? That there are temptations that will assail us just like the disciples. That there is a season in which we need to give ourselves to watch and pray. The reality is, is that time goes on. And the temptation comes anyway. That's the wise thing to do is to watch and pray, right? But those are the responsibilities. We've seen the, the repeated visits and then we've seen the responsibilities of the disciples that the, the command is to watch and pray. That the very command to the disciples would one day become the motto of Christians in all ages, particularly in the early ages. That watch and pray was the motto to much of the early church. It really summarized the duty of the local church. To fail in this area was to fail to be faithful, just as it seems to be the failure that, that led to the unfaithfulness of Peter and the disciples and their buckling under the pressure of temptation. His failure to watch and pray, and that's going to be the result. The result of a lack of watching and praying will lead to this loyalty to our Lord. Um, in the ex and the example of unfaithfulness to a lost and a dying world as well as to the church. That the failure to watch and pray may very well be the reason that they did not persevere. And the time was done. And if you linger over the text for just a moment, maybe you can look at the text in a way that you've not looked at it before. And I used to come to this text and think, man, our Lord is just so upset and frustrated with these men. But in all reality, I don't think that he is. I think he's concerned. Now, last week, again, I alluded to the fact that maybe he takes the, the three in with him to, to aid in him in support and prayer in his greatest hour of need. And that may be true to some extent. But why in the world does he continually get up from prayer and come back? 
Why doesn't he just bust heads? And why doesn't he just kick them awake? And why doesn't he say, I've preached to you a thousand times, man. Why don't you watch and pray like we do sometimes, even with our frustrations and possibly with our children after we've told them something time and time and time again. But he does, and he's very gentle. And I think he's gentle because he's concerned. I think that the reason that he tells them to watch and pray and he tells them over and over and over again, and he repeats it um, to such an extent, and he causes them to, to, and he provokes them to self-examination as to why they're not and why they are sleeping is because our, our Lord has a genuine concern for his disciples. That's the reason that he commands them to watch and pray is not simply arbitrarily to watch and pray, to see if they're going to be faithful. And to judge them and, to, and, and for various other reasons. I think that he tells them to watch and pray because he knows what's in the cup. Because he knows the sinners that bear the cup in some sense. He knows what is before them. He knows what it will bring. And he knows that if his disciples don't, do not watch and pray, then th their flesh is too weak. They will not persevere. That the test is coming. And it will leave them untrue and disloyal to their master if they fail in this area. That this is, uh, this is a, a, a temptation to them in particular. It's not just general, although there's general application. Men, there's something coming that you need to prepare for. And if you don't prepare for it, you will fail. Our Lord exits His prayer closet in the secret place out of a selfless concern for His disciples. That the weight of Gethsemane upon him, he could barely bear himself without help with the Father. How will they without the Father? That he, his, his sorrow and his agony and his anguish is so great that, that he grips the greatest instrument that he, could, that he could fathom. And that's prayer and communion with the Father. And thus our Lord try, uh, commands and then graciously leads them. To the, to the same area. Men, if you're going to persevere and stand on that day, you must watch and pray. He comes to them to aid and to nurture these sleeping disciples. Men, wake up. You must stay awake if you don't. I know that your spirit is willing. I know that you have zeal. I know that you have but zeal without knowledge, zeal without, without prayer, zeal without watching. You're going, to, you're going to buckle under the pressure the temptation, man, is at the door when the rest of the world cannot see Christ in us. Jesus sees it and He comes to us. It's easy for us to come to the disciples and think, man, you're, you're about as useless <laughs> you know, as, a, as a wooden nickel. Um, why do you even love them at all, Lord? They... Um, they continually fail you on every occasion. They're useless. But our Lord doesn't think of them like that. He doesn't lose it. It's very much self-controlled. He stops His communion with the Father and He goes to them to provoke them to watchfulness and prayer. Why? Because He knows they're weak. And the only thing that will sustain them is Him. It is that we are in a war. That the disciples were in a war. That they were facing the, the agony of Gethsemane. They were, they were one day facing Golgotha. And they would need strength. And they would need it. And our Lord did not leave them clueless, nor did He leave them instrumentless. But He left them with the tools that they would need. And He said, men, pick it up. I need for you. You need to watch. And you need to pray.
that those are the responsibilities. J.C. Ryle, that great um, preacher of days past, says, are we true Christians? And would we keep our souls awake? Then never let us forget to watch and pray. We are to be soldiers. We are upon enemy ground. We must always be on guard. The Christian rest is yet to come. We must pray without ceasing, regularly, habitually, carefully, and at the stated times of the church. We must pray as well as watch, and watch as well as pray. Watching without praying is self-confidence and self-conceit, and praying without watching is enthusiasm and fanaticism. And the man who knows his own weakness and knowing it well both watches and prays, and he is the man who will be upheld in the time of need. We are to watch. We, we know that the disciples failed in their lack of watchfulness, that their sleepiness and their lack of prayer. And, and, and two to us today, the application is the same. Men, women, children, you must, if you're going to persevere, watch and pray. Watch and pray. But yes, it was a particular temptation to them, but we have particular temptations to us. That the doctrine is clear, the teaching of Scripture, that, 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 that testing and trial and temptation will, be, will avail all of us if we do not watch and pray. That's the idea. That we are to be continually watching. That we are to be alive and alert to all spiritual realities around us that constitute to temptations and the devices of Satan. And what we have a proclivity or a tendency to do is to go to sleep. We love it. And I'm not just talking about sleep in physical realm, but that this physical reality is utilized to teach us spiritual truth, that we are to be awake spiritually. I mean, it's comfortable in our beds, isn't it? It's hard to get out some days. Who wants to live in the smell of corruption? Who wants to think about the evil that exists all around us? Who wants to be alive and awake to the realities of the turmoil, the devil himself, you know? It's easier to live in spiritual ignorance of those things. The difficulty's not there. The anxieties are not there. The worries are not there. The responsibility is not seemingly there. The accountability is not there. Or so it seems, right? It seems that way. The problem is, is that we are on many days what we condemn, aren't we? We condemn those that relativize Scripture and truth or redefine sin and hell so that they, in a postmodern culture so that they don't have to deal with the ramifications of it and live as they please. They do that with things like homosexuality, transgenderism. They do that with sin. They do that with the doctrines uh, that we would consider to be paramount and that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that, 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 that there is no other worshipers of God other than Him. And they relativize Scripture so that it removes responsibility and accountability. But, that, but, but, but is that not the sin of much of the church? Who we lie comfortably asleep to the realities going on all around us? And it's evident by a lack of watchfulness and prayer. Right? Then we don't have to address the sin in our lives. Then we don't have to be as active as we think that we ought to be. Then if we do that, then we'll have to study our Bibles. We'll have to spend time in prayer. We'll have to go to church. We'll have to evangelize the lost. We'll have to care for the widows and the orphans. We'll have to ease the suffering of the world. We'll have to mortify the sin of our lives. And it's, and it's just so much more nice to just stay in bed. You know? Sedation is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Um, 
In the former days, I, I've probably given more sedation as a nurse um, than I ever thought that I would ever. Thousands upon thousands of micrograms of fentanyl, um, milligrams and milligrams of Versed, and people love it. And it's necessary at times, and it puts you to sleep, and you don't have to endure the pain. And years ago, ether was used, from what I understand. And the old-fashioned way that they had to do it was like those old movies that you would see as a, a criminal's running up, and he would have it dressed in a rag, Right? <laughs> And he would put it over the nasal and just for a few seconds they would fight until. But the great fear of that is, is being overwhelmed to such that, 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 that in the sleep you don't know, that you can't do anything. That's the danger. Like it's nice because the responsibility is not there. It's nice because the accountability is gone. But at the same time, like you, you, you're incapacitated when you're asleep. That's the worry that some people even have of going to sleep. Someone will break in. That's why he says watch. Because... But be awake, because that's when the thief will come in to steal, kill, and destroy. That's when they will come in to break in and take everything that you have and destroy it all. You must stay awake. There must be a fight. Why? Because when you're asleep, you don't know what's going on around you. You must stay awake. You must be watchful. And listen, if you're not watchful, you will not be prayerful. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a significant relationship between watchfulness and prayer, I'm convinced. That our prayer life lacks because we do not, we are not watchful. You know, we have no idea what's going on around us and we don't want to know. We want to live in our own little world and we want to focus on um, what we have and what we desire and, and, and what it does is it, 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 it blinds us to the realities all around us. Doesn't it? You know? That, that, that true, fervent prayer is most often undergirded by a clarity of the evil and the, and, and the work of God all around us, right? That even with a, a person who is overwhelmed with sleep, with a desire to sleep, such that they are exhausted when the right type of emergency comes along, it will wake them up as clear as day, you know? Some of you women have been awake through birth, through, 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 through laboring for days, you know, because you're working and you're laboring to produce um, a child into this world. Some things have happened as you've been up for days in your life because of a loved one that has passed away or a, 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 a tragedy with a child or something that, 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 that if you go to sleep, you can do nothing. Thus, therefore, you must stay awake. You have to. You have to get them to the hospital. It doesn't matter how long that you've been asleep. There's, there's this, this, this reality that just grips you to the fact that if you go to sleep, you can't do nothing. You will not persevere. And you are subject to all the circumstances around you. And that there are enemies out there that would consume you in just a moment. And that's why time and time again throughout the Scriptures, Paul, as well as Peter in his epistle, as well as Jesus Christ Himself, says that you must, the Christian life can be summarized like this, watch and pray. You must be praying. Men and women, you must be in prayer. We must be in prayer. That's what he says. He says, sit here while I pray. And then he says, now you pray. You pray. What was it? What was his prayer? It wasn't just a ritual of words. It wasn't just a mechanical routine. It wasn't just a good example to the disciples. Prayer to many is just a superstitious formula. It's, um, it's like spiritual gambling. It's a game of chance. It's, it's something to comfort us. It's, 
Um, oftentimes, just a last chance, more than a first choice, right? It's something that we do when we're without any other options, such as we are on our deathbeds instead of daily communion and fellowship with Christ. And as Christians, of course, we know that that's not true, but practically speaking, is it? Someone would mention prayer for a loved one, and it's almost assumed that something's wrong, right? Probably because the only time that we ever ask for prayer is when something's wrong. Um, for example, what if I got up here today and I was very emotional and I said, pray for my marriage? You would say, sure, what's wrong? Why does something have to be wrong to request prayer? Why is prayer not something that is regular with us because we know that without it on a daily basis, our marriage will never prevail. Because we recognize that the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak and I want to love my wife on, on every day and I want to love my children and I want to honor Christ and I want to do what's right, but I'm weak and I'm frail. I'm a fragile man. Some days I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hater of the world and I'm, a, and I'm a rebellion against God. You know, I'm a wretched man and I'm, I'm weak and while there may not be anything visibly wrong with my marriage, I need prayer. You need prayer. You need prayer for your children. We don't need to pray for one another's children when they're lost off in the world, rebelling against anything and everything. We need to pray for them now. We need to realize now that if there's that, 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 that with all the education and with all the sheltering and with, with all of the, the, the discipling and with all of the, the, the discipline and, and, and all of these things that are going on in our homes, we give ourselves over to our children, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week and, and, and without prayer, it means nothing. You know, without the, the, the very activity of God to take those, the, 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 those, those human instruments and that common grace and that special revelation into the very hearts of our, our children when they are at their youngest point. I mean, uh, we can do our due diligence all day long, but, 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 but that's exactly what Peter was doing. He was, he was zealous. I mean, he was, he was in, excited. He was the guy that you would follow. And the other 11 did, freely and willingly. And they wanted to. But at the same time, they had this, 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 this overwhelming sense of pride that, that, that somehow they could do it without God. You know, that they could persevere and they could, they, could, they, they, they could go to the end and they could die upon the cross alongside Him. That they could do something for Him. But they were going to do it in their own strength. That's why, men, you must watch. You must know your own frailty. You must depend upon Christ and you must seek Him for it. For everything in life. Because we are weak. The reality is that, that prayer is this idea of last um, chance type of mentality. When things are going all wrong, we just need to understand that the potential for things to fall apart um, is every day. And that given us any day apart from Christ and apart from the, the grace of God and His upholding, that we would be like David up on a rooftop uh, seeing Bathsheba and, and just days and hours away of ruining an entire kingdom of which we will never recover. That men, you think you're too strong. We think we're too strong. We test the Spirit and we tempt um, God even with, 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 with I, can, I can look at that, I can do this, I can engage with that person thinking all the while. And that God stands forth even this morning as He does with the disciples. I know that you're, I, I even know that your spirit is willing and desires. But listen, you must understand that the flesh is weak. And that you need to depend upon not only upon your own strength, but upon God Himself. 
And that if you're not watchful, you will not pray. And listen, if you won't pray, you won't be watchful. That our watchfulness brings to reality all the, 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 the spiritual truth that is around us. That it provokes us to prayer and prayer strengthens us to stay awake and to be even more watchful. And some of you say, man, I'm watchful. I know the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Like I'm watching everything. What about your prayer? You know? If you were awake and aware, you know, watchfulness without prayer will either lead to presumption or despair, right? Presumption, I can face this thing on my own. Peter, I've got this. I know the world's going to hell in a handbasket and I'm strong enough. You need to pray. I need to pray. Either that or you'll be like me on a lot of days in despair. You'll look around and you'll say, man, who can stand? Who can do this? I mean, you've, you've got a clear vision of what's going on in the world and you know where things are wrong and you know that it's falling apart and you know there's turmoil and you know there's difficulty and you know, and you look around and you're just like, man, who can, who can do this? Who can be faithful? I mean, you look around, the world's falling apart you know, and the church should be the moral compass and it's not. You know, it's not leading the way. So many faithful men fall into adultery, lascivious lifestyles. Feminism, transgenderism, LGBTQ, critical race theory, um, you name it, I mean, are just infiltrating even the pulpits that we once loved. And there's seemingly new advances on the church in our age as well as old advances. What are you going to do? I mean, Islam seems to be rising. The agenda against Christianity is, is more than evident. The economy is unstable. Politics even more so. Babies are being murdered in the womb at incalculable rates. And there's nobody out there to stand in the gap. You know why? Because we think, what, what can we do? And who are we? We live in a society that's without a doubt a post-Christian culture, hostile to biblical Christianity, ready, ready to relabel it not as Christianity at all. But it's radical fundamentalism because true Christianity would never be so intolerant. I mean, who's able to stand in that? Right? Last year, I, or several years ago, in the beginning of my nursing career, I had a patient that just reviled at the idea. They heard the nursery rhyme over, over top and said, hey, God forbid. I mean, who would bring a child into this God-forsaken world? That's what they literally said. Little do they know that I've got seven on the way. <laughs> you know? But, but that's... And they were well-meaning. Their spirit was willing. It wasn't because they hated babies. It was because they were despairing. The reality of the turmoil and unrest in our world. I mean, we do the same thing here. We do it with the church. I mean, we believe in Matthew chapter 28 that God's commanded us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, but how many of us actually believe that He will receive the nations? I mean, and you hear it practically speaking. We need to plant churches, man. You know? What do you think about planting a church in that area? I don't know. That's a closed country. That's an awful hostile place, you know. And I think you should pick a safer area. Or even locally. Talked about people getting buildings or, or planting down in this area or that area. That just doesn't fit with our church. It's not... It's not, it's not compatible with the values of this church. You know, why? Because we're family-oriented. We don't want to go to that part of town. Don't ever tell me that. That's the community for which Christ died. He deserves them. And we're not here to build our own kingdom. 
We're here to build heels. What will happen is we will look into the world and, and we will, in our own strength, try to accomplish the kingdom of God and, and God will humble us um, just to the core. Or we will despair and end up in this um, anxiety, depression type of mentality with shame and guilt, knowing that we ought to be doing something. But we really don't believe that God can do it. We know it. We don't believe it. Thus, we must pray. We must be like our Lord who enters in with the greatest sorrow of His life and even has some hesitations, even has some reservations, even has a, a recoiling spirit unto which, which, which He's unsettled in His heart and in a place that He's never gone before. What does He do? He grips the greatest instrument um, in which He knows. He doesn't run to this organization or that organization or to His disciples. He goes to God. His watchfulness, the reality of what is before Him provoked Him. He can see it clearly now. And if I'm going to, 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 to tackle this thing in his humanity, he agonizes over it. But he knows that the only place to go for strength is to God. Thus, he goes to pray. And you see our Lord be that ultimate example. But not just an example, um, but, 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 but divinity and humanity married together in such a way that we look at him and see what he did. And we know that that's what we should do, disciples. That's what you should have done. What should they have done? They should have taken their sorrow. They should have watched. They should have prayed. They should have went to the Lord. And thus we see the result. We see the result. Christ prayed and prevailed. And then what he says is, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And they failed. Our Lord comes even with some reservation. As to, and we're not arguing against that. We, we, we don't understand the full mystery of it. Um, but without a doubt, He comes and He says, Lord, all things are possible. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but Thine be done. And what does our Lord do? Our, the Father answers Him, it seems, in the third prayer as He agonizes there in prayer and He wakes up and He stands up with a different countenance and He says, it's settled, boys. Let's go. You know? That from this moment you see a holy resolve, you see a countenance that's different, you see no, you see you see a lack of agonizing and a lack of visible um, external hesitation or reservation towards the cross. He's met with God, and God has has uh, I think Revelation or Hebrews chapter five. He says that, that that when he prayed with vehement cries and tears, he was heard by God because of his holiness, because of his righteousness, because of his piety. He went and he persevered in prayer, and he heard from God. And I believe that, that, that he would save him from death. He didn't change his will. And that's what prayer is, is, is there for. It's not to, to, to change the will of God to my will, but it is that my will might be molded to his will in such a way that we have faith that whatever he has desired for us, now that we see it with clarity, we know that we can endure it, that he will save us as he did from Christ, with Christ from death. I think that, that, that there was a resolve in him at that moment because he looked towards the resurrection. Because he looked towards the fact that yes, he would die and yes, the cup would be full, but, but, but that would only be momentary and temporarily in, uh, in eternity's realm. That, 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 that God the Father would save and exalt God the Son. Thus, it gave him the resolve to move forward. I'm not saying that a fruitful prayer life for you or me will change much of anything externally, although it can. And God can answer prayers, but, 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 but oftentimes what you will find is that that which you are despairing over is not the change that you are. 
you were to change. That you were to look at the world different and that you were to look at God different and you were to understand that this is your lot in life and that this is your family and that this is your marriage and that this is your place of work and that this is your community and that this is your church. And you are to love it like Christ does. And you are to trust Him in it. And you are to move forward with the will of God before you. And you are to do it with resolve and with commitment. But the only way you'll ever do that is to be watchful and brave. And that's where they failed, didn't they? That seems to be the difference between the two. How is it that Christ is sustained? Well, He's divinity. I know that, but, but He's also humanity. And He depends upon God to keep him and sustain him. And the disciples, they talk a big game. But the reality is is that martyrdom will never be an end unless watchfulness and prayer are the means. And that's as true to us today as it was to them. They failed, um, and their failure was a watchfulness failure or a prayer failure or both. You know? I was reading uh, at the end of a booklet by uh, Leonard Ravenhill. Just a passionate man who loved God and had a, had a um, desire for prayer. He spoke of a man who was the president of a church in England, um, a frail man, a little man, a man whom you wouldn't have thought would have done much of anything for the kingdom of God in his beginning. Um, started out as a plow man. God took him and raised him up. Um, but a fragile man. God used him in a mighty way. At the end of his life, he says, I gave two-thirds of my life to Bible study and one-third to prayer. And he said, if I have any counsel to you men, I'd give probably one-third of my life to Bible study and two-thirds to prayer. And what he didn't mean was he wasn't saying that talking to God in prayer is more important than him talking to us in his word. One thing we love around here is the word of God and just um, we emphasize just the necessity of it, preaching and teaching. Um, but I think what he was saying was that, um, that there is a great need to depend upon God even in the understanding of the word of God. And that sometimes we probably spend way too much time or more time in study of the Word of God without prayer when coupled with prayer, um, it would be much more eternally value with a little volume than with a greater volume of knowledge to condemn us on that great day. There'd be a lot of men that have a Bible knowledge without a doubt. They didn't depend on God for anything. They stood up in their own intellect and skill and they preached and, and God blessed anyway and, and used them. Um, but the, the idea is is that you know, even with an, an uneducated man who's saved by the grace of God and the Spirit of God to give him understanding, um, will take him to the ends of the earth with zeal and with passion that will change the world. Um, yes, we should give ourselves to study. Yes, we should give ourselves to training. Yes, we should do all these things, but we should never do it apart from watchfulness and prayer. You know, um, the old adage is often, you know, one, orca- one acorn is a mighty oak, right? What people fail to, to, to think about sometimes, though, is that really in one acorn is a forest. Because one mighty oak will produce thousands of acorns, which will produce more trees, which will produce more acorns. You know, And really, what we need is for God to meet us um, in the text of Scripture and in the Word of God to produce something that will last and produce forever instead of just filling our minds with the superficial knowledge apart from actual communion with God and being in His presence, that the disciples carried on very mechanically in a robotic fashion in their own strength. You know what it got them? Thank God it got them some humility. 
And thank God He uses it in our lives even to humble us. And to bring us to the end of ourselves, to teach us to be watchful and prayer and prayerful. And that we should as well. Most and I know that, you know, I'm not I'm not beating anybody up this morning. I know you want to pray more. I know they did. But the reality is, is that we don't. That our flesh is weak. And we find everything in the world to keep us from it, don't we? We make all the excuses. We're too busy. Too busy to come to a prayer meeting. Too busy to pray at home. I mean, I just got too much going on in the day. I should wake up and early to five minutes or ten minutes and spend time in prayer. But I'm just so exhausted at the end of the day that I don't. You know, I think it was Martin Luther who said that I've got so much to do this week. I need to wake up two hours earlier and pray. But that's the reality. The reality is, is that our sleep is not keeping us from prayerfulness. It's our watchfulness and prayerlessness um, that is keeping us sleeping. That if you see the day and the hour, and you see you as yourself just totally um, incapable, that's, I think that's what he means by the flesh is weak. And that's what throughout the scriptures, that's what you find, that the law is weak. It's without strength. It's, uncap- it's incapable. It's, it's without the ability to do and to accomplish um, spiritual things, anything of spiritual measure. And it's unable to save. That's the idea. We are unable. You need to see the world clearly. You need to see God clearly. I need to see myself clearly. And when I see that, it should bring, ring the alarms and, and it plays itself out, manifests itself in utter, utter, utter dependence upon God in prayer. When we meet God in prayer, He takes what we have and He brings it to life and He produces trees and forests, even out of the, the most minute spiritual truth because it's inexhaustible in its depth. Even one verse like that, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. And that is enough to feed the soul for the ages to come. That we ought to be and we must be watchful and prayerful. Another uh, unknown commentator said, difficulties give way before determined men. Um, And that's the truth. Christ's difficulties gave way before a determined, holy, righteous, committed man. He went to the Lord. And the Lord met him. He went because he was watchful. And he went, he stayed, and persevered until he got the answer. It didn't make his life easier, but it did give him the strength to move forward because he knew that God had heard him. Um, what about our lives? Men, are you watchful? Does it cause you to presume upon God? Or does it cause you to despair? Or does it cause you to run into the very presence of God and depend upon Him and wrestle with Him until you get an answer? Like Jacob or like Christ. Not to change His will. Maybe not even to understand His will. But that He might give you the faith to believe that it is the will of God and that if He and that if it is, then He promises to go with you all the way, even to the end of the earth, even unto death and thereafter. Thus, men and women, children, we must watch and we must pray because the Spirit is willing and the flesh is weak and Christ is our bread of life. Thus, eat the bread and drink the cup even this day, spiritually speaking. What are you trusting God for? What are you believing God for? What are you despairing over? Um, And Peter, why have you been asleep? Why can't you watch even one hour? 
mean, if you can't run with the footmen, how will you keep up with the horses? Thus, let us look to Christ. Let us believe Him more and let it be evident to the world because of our watchfulness and our prayer. Let us be praying, men. If they, if they say nothing else about us in this church or me as an individual, may they say, uh, he believed God. He believed God. I mean, he couldn't. I mean, when you find him, you'd find him on his knees. I read about a man who, who died at a young age and he had calluses on his knees and there was a discolored portion beside his bed because he stayed in dependence upon God. Never wanted any acclamation, but he was exalted in due time because Christ exalted him because he exalted Christ. Um, should we minister more? Yes. But before we ever minister more, let us pray more. Let us pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the privilege it is to call upon your name. Father, we thank you for the, the, the blessing of your word. We thank you, Father, for um, just being patient with us. Father, we thank you that at any moment you would be right and just just to come and bust heads and throw this place apart and, and rip up the pews. And Father, because we have been so unfaithful in many ways, individuals and as, as a church, but you come this morning and you just speak so gently to us, Father, and you say, I know that you love me and I know that you're willing, but your flesh is weak. Father, we recognize that. And may we not presume upon you, may we not despair, but Father, may this provoke us to, to be watchful and prayerful. Father, may you help us in that because we don't know how. Father, may you give us the resolve and the commitment, Father. May you give us the faith to believe. Father, may you give us just um, the, the conviction to turn from our sins and turn to you, Father. And may we take more seriously sin and grace. Father, may it just overwhelm our hearts and cause us to look to Christ, who is our only hope, Father, not only in salvation, but that we might um, stay faithful and persevere. Father, we need so much growing. Um, and thus, we need so much more of you. So help us to pray. Father, provoke us to prayer. And help us to be watchful. Bring to light the infirmities of our own soul and the depravity of this world and the turmoil that's all around us. And help us to believe you, Father, that you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Father, I thank you for meeting with us this morning and pray that you'll do so much the more even as we dismiss, Father. We love and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.